As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Cory Booker. He's a Democrat running for president in 2020. He's a vegan. He celebrates a milestone birthday this year. He believes in the power of whiteboards when it comes to goal setting. He's single, so when he's out in the town, that can become tabloid news. And when it comes to campaigning, he says he's really more of a lover than a fighter. This is the price of politics, etc. Cory Booker was born in D.C. He was raised in New Jersey. He played tight end at Stanford, was a high school football star, but he never really became that star in college, and he eventually left the team. He graduated, later studied at Oxford, got his law degree at Yale. He started in politics on the Newark, New Jersey Municipal Council. He eventually became mayor, and then in 2013, he made history. He became New Jersey's first ever African-American United States senator. We began our conversation talking about his diet. Now, he's been a vegan for a long time, but recently he's dropped 40 to 50 pounds, he estimated. He's focused on cutting out a lot of junk food, things like that. So I start talking about his diet, but you'll notice how he immediately segues into his Iowa family. Let's talk about this vegan thing, right? <laughs> um, well, can I get my Iowa cred out right away? Do it, I do mean, it. Look, I mean, this is a state that has given so much to my family. My grandmother was born and raised here, uh, right here in Des Moines. And uh, my family originally were coal miners in Alabama, moved up to Buxton, uh, Iowa, in a coal mining town. And that was a town that gave my family really an entrance into the working class. And my grandmother grew up with two parents that were, one was a janitor and a, and a bank here in Iowa, and another one was a domestic. So uh, this is the state that you know, it literally sent my grandmother into the world. The church took a collection, sent her off to college where she met my grandfather, and my mom was born. Uh, I heard on a pre your last trip here, you had so many requests from family and such a big gathering of family, is that true? It is, it is. How many people? Gosh, uh, I think the home probably had uh, close to 100 folks. Um, all related? Um, all or related close or close related, yeah. Okay. yeah. And now it's great. We have like five generations. My, my grandmother's first cousin, my Aunt Alma, turns 100 this month. And she's a matriarch of the family, sharp as a whip, and really been one of my best advisors uh, in telling me about campaigning up here. She's incredible. I first met Booker in Philadelphia back in 2016 at the Democratic National Convention. And one morning, he was giving a rousing pep talk to the Iowa delegation. The delegates had all gathered in their hotel for breakfast. You see hope. You see possibility. You see love. You see the face of God. Then you can be one of those people that helps me. when this coalition is calling us 
to see possibility. We can't give in to what is here now. And we also have to understand when we hear people talking trash, that that says more about them yeah. than the person yes. that they're talking about. Many of the delegates were standing for much of Booker's remarks that morning. Now fast forward three years later, and Booker is a different looking man. When we caught up with you in Philadelphia at the Democratic National Convention, um, you're a little bigger. Yeah. You look healthier now. I appreciate that. It's, it's uh, one of the things that uh, I did this when I turned 40 and now I'm closing in on 50 and just uh, being a former athlete, I think you still have that. You still think you were a tight end at Stanford University, but I wanted to try to get back in that shape. I used to be chiseled. Uh, and when I got to the point where I just jiggled, I knew I had to try to get back down. Now, are you strict, strict vegan? Because there are varying degrees, as you know. I'm a, I'm a vegan, uh, you know, I care about well-being like everybody, and you try to make the decisions that are best for your body. So everybody from Tom Brady now to a lot of other athletes I, uh, I really admire understand that, uh, in fact, in 1992 I became a vegetarian, I was still playing, I was playing varsity basketball at that point for Oxford University, and just found that my performance was better for me, it gave me more energy, and so I've been on this for a long time. The protein stuff though, isn't it? Well, you know, you, people don't realize that some of the strongest uh, animals in the animal kingdom from, you know, uh, elephants to gorillas, you know, uh, don't eat, really eat meat. So you can, there's a lot of sources of protein out there. Uh, you have a milestone coming up in April. Yes. Right? The big so 5-0. Why, why not run for president, right? Yeah, yes. Uh, does it, does it kind of, are you one of those guys that kind of takes stock as you get these milestone ones or not? Or is a number not really a big deal to you? You know, I've always been one of these folks that regularly takes stock. Uh, since I was a little kid, I learned, uh, you know, every marking period, I would stop. Okay, what are my goals? What am I in this? What's my purpose? And uh, it's been a, one of the best sort of life uh, sort of practices for me to always take time to slow down, pull back. What are your goals and what's your focus? Why are you here? Um, I still remember when I went to college, uh, my, my roommate, uh, still one of my closest friends, godfather, his kid, uh, used to joke at me because I had a whiteboard up and I would write down my goals. And back then I said, my purpose here is really three things. Perform in sports, I was playing tight end for Stanford. I perform in the classroom and then I was very inter interested in being a servant leader. So, you know, being involved, what are my service projects? How do you, um, how do you weigh what this means to your family and friends? So, you know, it becomes, you announce you're running for president and all of a sudden it's national headlines because you have a girlfriend, right? Because yeah. it's just different. Yeah. Because normally, you know, a person's married when they make it to the White House. That whole level of additional scrutiny, so now you're gonna probably have paparazzi following you around if you try to go out for dinner or whatever. Yeah. How do you how do you view that? Well, I, I think I got used to it early on. I, I live in the New York media market, which is incredibly intrusive, you know. I'd be out to dinner with somebody, it would end up in page six. So I think a lot of my family and friends have become acclimated, but you know, life is about uh, purpose, not popularity. It's about significance, not celebrity. You, you block all those things out, and this goes back to that goal setting I do on a regular basis. Why are we here? You're gonna get criticized, you're gonna get attacked, uh, people are gonna say things about you, but if you stay centered and focused on what your purpose is, uh, what your focus is, a lot of that stuff just falls to the wayside. And I have a family, I'm very blessed uh, to have a family that supports me, uh, keeps me in prayer. Uh, my mom has been worried about my safety since I was a mayor and would end up in tussles or into mixes that my mom, you know, uh, would, would always say, boy, you're keeping me on my knees. I'm wearing through lots of pairs of pants. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I stay centered in my faith. I stay focused on my purpose and let the rest of it, you know, let people say what they're going to say.
I remember talking to then Senator Obama in 06 and 07, and he was talking about when he was trying to figure out whether to run, he had to figure out, is this my moment? How do you know that this is your moment? You know, I, I have this just a, a deep love of our country that comes from parents who often told me some of the worst stories about our country. Uh, you know, my parents have seen a lot of bigotry and discrimination coming up, but yet growing up around the dinner table, they're the most patriotic people you'd ever meet. And they would just tell me these stories about this being a country where from my father's first job to even the house I grew up in, it would not have happened if it wasn't for white folks and black folks who came together and said, you know what, he's a qualified African-American talking to companies, give him a shot, give him a job. And my dad took those opportunities, doubled down, and he, you know, he was the first African-American hired by IBM as a salesman in the entire region in which he was hired. And he would always tell me, I excelled in that company, not just because I was a hard worker, it, I was also excelled in the company because people came together to give me a shot. The house I grew up in, they denied my parents the house because of the color of their skin. They had to get a white couple to pose as them to buy the home. Uh, my dad's lawyer, when he showed up and, and said the white couple at the day of closing, my dad's lawyer got punched in the face. But my dad would tell me growing up that you're, you're here because, yeah, your parents worked hard to afford this home, but you're also here because the history of this, of this country has been people coming together to overcome injustice and open up opportunities. So, you know, for me now, it, 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 look, this is a moment where those very values of our country, that the lines that divide us, uh, uh, somehow people are starting to think those are stronger than the ties that bind us. When I grew up, those very people in that town that helped us move in were Republicans and Democrats. I grew up in a Republican area. And so for me, this is not, it wasn't complicated uh, sort of, is this my moment? This is an American moment where I really feel we're at a crossroads, where a lot of people are feeling that the tribalism is deepening, where the politics is becoming about pitting people against each other, uh, that you hear all this trash talking, where you're tearing people down. That's not the America I know. That's not my family story. I believe in the American grace and decency and goodness and kindness. I believe that we can have a politics, politics that calls to the best of who we are, not the worst of who we are. And so in this moment where I see worries, I have real worries, like other people do, about our country's ability to work for everybody, that, that worry called me saying this is a moment where all of us as Americans can't just sit back and, 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 and curse the darkness of where our public discourse is going, where our politics is going. We all have to take a little bit more responsibility and do something about it. It's what my mom said, is that this is a moment where we need that revival of civic grace, where we need to recommit ourselves to creating in America that beloved community. And so I'm very excited to get in this race. And I know my, I know my purpose, just like that college kid writing on his whiteboard. I'm clear of what I, why I'm running. And, and by the way, if that's not what folk want, if folk want people that are gonna fight fire with fire, I, I was a mayor, I had to run a fire department. You don't uh, show up at a, at a house burning down and bring more fire. Uh, if, people, if people want that, then that's fine, and I'm not gonna be the nominee for the Democratic Party. But I wanna tell the Democratic Party right now, it can't be about what we're against, it has to be about what we're for. It can't be about matching the tactics uh, of, that we deplore with all, tactics that are similar. Um, um, we can't just have this race to be about the small thing, beating Republicans. I want to run because I want to unite Americans back to that sense of common purpose. But do you worry that if Donald Trump is the nominee for them in 2020, do you worry that he will, by doing the way you're talking about, that they will kind of portray this as he's the tough guy, you're the wimp, because you're not you're not returning that fire. Well, as a former Pac-10 uh, tight end, nobody's ever called me a wimp. 
And anybody who knows my record uh, knows uh, that I've come up through the toughest politics in America. There's an Oscar-nominated documentary called Street Fight, and I am one of the contenders. Uh, it's on Netflix right now. Uh, people can see how tough I've been taking on fights, but not fighting against people, fighting to defend people. And I'll tell you what, we need to get back to the point in America where we realize that being strong doesn't mean you have to be mean. In fact, some of the strongest people I've ever seen showed strength through their kindness, through their courageous empathy. Uh, uh, my heroes, John Lewis, he didn't stand up against uh, fire hoses and, and dogs by unleashing his own dogs. Uh, he stood up there with the most defiant love I've ever seen. And if he is not one of the strongest people in American history, uh, the guy uh, in his freedom rides, sit-ins, marches, if he didn't show a, a, a strength that is inspiring people still to this day, uh, then I don't, I don't want to uh, 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 be uh, what that uh, wrong definition of, of strength is. I've always known what it means to be strong. Strong is that mom who uh, works full-time jobs, does, still below the, below the poverty line, still needs food stamps, uh, but she never gives up. She keeps on fighting. I want to show the kind of strength that I'm fighting for her. I, I want the kind of strength for that person who feels like they're getting screwed in every way, they're, they're, the cost of their prescription drug has gone up 300% in a year and they can't even take it right now, or that person who believes that every single day they're just praying they don't get sick because they can't afford to go to see a doctor, and yet they keep persisting to take care of their family, to go to work. That's strength, and I want to stand up for those folks. So don't tell me that the definition of strength is toxic tweets. Uh, don't tell me the definition of strength is how much you push another person down and demean their character. Strength is to me is your ability to lift people up, is to persist uh, against ad adversity, to stand up for what you believe in, even if it's not popular, and speak your truth. And so I know what American strength is. American strength isn't uh, what we're seeing from the White House right now. American strength is those that courageous after the the devastation of World War II and saying, we're Americans, we're gonna be there for Europe, we're gonna be there for the Marshall Plan. American strength is saying that, you know what, uh, uh, Jim Crow is wrong, and I may be white, I may be Jewish, I may live in Iowa, but there are people from this state that got on buses and did freedom rides and showing the strength of the people. That's the American character, that's the American strength uh, that I wanna celebrate and that I believe we need right now. Uh, let's talk taxes if we can here. Uh, we're hearing some different ideas, obviously, especially on the Democratic side, there's been so much pushback about uh, the President's and the Republicans' tax plan that they, tax cuts that they put through here. How will you communicate to people how you would change our tax structure, and is there a particular threshold? You know, Elizabeth Warren's thrown out some stuff, um, some others have as well. Do you have a threshold on what, is it the super, super rich that can expect things to change? How are you gonna communicate that? You know, come on, let's just get back to the basic values of our country. Our tax code doesn't, doesn't reflect our values. You're, you can be a 55-year-old school, uh, school teacher, and you get screwed by a tax system that benefits more a 25-year-old stockbroker. You get better tax treatment than the person that every single day is reaching in their pocket uh, to pay for school supplies for their kids or pay for clothing or food for their kids. We have a tax code that pushes so much of the benefits to the wealthiest amongst us, working class people, middle class people, uh, who are doing things that we should be prioritizing, small businesses doing things that we should be incentivizing don't get tax breaks. And so th there's a lot of arguments, but everybody knows uh, uh, that we have lower taxes on the wealthiest people in the last decade or two. Um, uh, creating massive deficits, taking money out of our system that should be invested in roads and bridges and public education. 
So this is not a debate about whether we need to shift our tax code so it benefits middle class folks, benefits working class folks, incentivizes things, and invests in people again, education, training, uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, uh, science and research. We used to be the number one country on the planet Earth investing in those things in terms of percentage of our GDP. We've turned down our investments in those things in order to give tax breaks to the wealthiest of us, while other countries out-invest us in education, out-invest us in infrastructure. And what's happened? Their infrastructures, China just built 18,000 miles of high-speed rail, the, the busiest rail corridor in America that goes through my state, now runs a half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s. So we've got to get back to a tax system that reflects our values. And it's not something radical. You know, we moved the corporate tax rate way down. I believe we should have lowered it. Uh, but you know what? The effective tax rate for some of these companies because of their loopholes is zero. 5%, 10%. We need to make sure people are paying fair taxes, dial it back up a little bit, focus tax breaks on people that are willing to risk it. When you down. say dial it up, are you talking about corporate or? I'm talking about corporate taxes, which were lower too much. They weren't even asking for it. But we have a party that's in power that seems to just want to continue to heap money on the wealthiest of corporations. That, that's not a reflection of our values. What about the individual side? Individual side, again, this is not. Uh, a, a rocket science. If you just go back to where the, the estate tax was back uh, in those crazy wild years in the 1990s, you just go back there, you're going to generate m billions of dollars of more revenue that we can do to lower the deficit, because of Democrats, we needed to talk about that, but also to invest in infrastructure, invest in education. So, of course, the highest marginal tax rates need to go up. That, that's, this is not, there's, there's, a, there's a consensus of people that understand. We are racking up massive deficits. Let me give you another example. My grandmother from Iowa, I mean, she was appalled. We, we are this nation that every time we would go to war, not only would our soldiers be making the sacrifice, my grandfather worked on a, a, in Willow Run bomber plant, making the airplanes that fought. My grandmother told me about victory gardens, about rationing, because when we, this country went to war, everybody sacrificed for it. Then suddenly we come with a Republican administration. The first time we ever went into war in American history, the, the Republican president says, hey, you know what? No common sacrifice. We're going to spend trillions of dollars in other countries, but you know what? You get a tax break. And you know what that did to our country? It ran up massive deficits. And now we've had a 17-year war and nobody's feeling the sacrifice for it. And, and we have huge, massive deficits that have run up against another president. I'm sorry, there's not a family in this, in this country that knows that when you want to spend more money, you better earn more money. And so we as a country have to get back to paying for what we want to do, investing in the things that actually grow our economy, that create more opportunity, and making sure that those people who are living lives of privilege beyond our ancestors' wildest dreams, make sure that they don't get tax breaks so that that stockbroker is paying less of a percentage of their taxes than their secretary. That's insane. So let's get a tax system that reflects our priorities, that puts us back as, as the top nation that invests in things like education and make sure that we create more opportunity for the future and not less. I also talked to Booker about the Democrats' Green New Deal. New York's Democratic Socialist rookie Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has really become the face of this idea. And the resolution for the Green New Deal stated that the goal is to, quote, move America to 100% clean and renewable energy by 2030. She admits this is a radical idea here. The main purpose is to address the escalating climate change crisis that threatens the overall well-being of the planet. Here's how Ocasio-Cortez sums it up. Our environmental challenges are the, one of the biggest 
existential threats to our way of life. Now, a big part of this, though, is to eliminate the need for fossil fuels, which, of course, right now drive most of our cars, trucks, boats, and planes. So you're talking about huge changes. It would also upgrade every existing building to make them more energy efficient. But this Green New Deal is about more than just the environment. It also guarantees a job for everybody, and the wages would be enough to take care of a family. Everybody would be able to get education and health care. Pretty radical goals. Overall, Booker says he agrees with the broader goal here, though. This, is to me, reminds me of exactly that moment when a president stood before his country and said something that was almost, almost science fiction-like. He pointed in the sky and you say, you see that ball up there, that moon? It's not a dream. It's a destination. We're going there. Now, the critics could have sat up there, oh, that's going to cost so much money. Oh, my gosh, you can't do that. Or are you going to tax us to do it? No. This was America having a bold vision for where we have to go. And so we're at that moment, except for it's not just a moment of aspiration. It's also a moment of peril. Our planet is in peril. The fires in California, the, fl- in California, the flooding in the Midwest, the sea level rise, it's affected dramatically devastating the coast uh, uh, where I live. All of these things are real. Crazy weather events are real. There's a consensus of scientists all around the planet Earth who are saying we are heading towards a peril. And so we have to do something about it. And so every American should ask ourselves, are we going to lead at this moment or are we going to lag? Are we going to be a part of the solution or a part of the problem? Now is the time we do need bold, visionary leaders that point the way, that chart the course, and that's what the Green New Deal is about. And I'm a former mayor. There's, there, I, there's no more of a pragmatist than me about solving problems. And when you get everybody around a table to negotiate, you don't get everything that you want all the time. Sometimes you have to settle for half a loaf. Heck, I told people when I went to the Senate that I'm going to tear down this crazy system of mass incarceration. Worked for five years across the aisle on a bill. We came up with a great bill. Does it go as far as we needed to go? No. Did I say I'm sorry? I, I, if it's not everything I want, then I'm not participating. Heck no. I got the bill done. Thousands of people will be liberated from unjust incarceration. And so here we are. I'm standing up with my colleagues from around the country and saying we're going to the moon. But in this time, we're going to lead this, this planet out of peril into a green future that is not going to hurt our economy, that's going to help create jobs. How do I know? Because I did it when I was mayor. We environmentally retrofitted our buildings. We saved taxpayer money as a result. We created jobs. I had teenagers getting training in how to do, put on solar panels. We made it a more healthier city by lowering our heat index, less asthma. Win, 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 win. America needs to lead the planet Earth in the green future. It needs to lead the planet, lead the planet Earth in lowering energy costs, lead the planet Earth in the green technology that the rest of the planet is going to want, and that's going to create industry and jobs here. Our farmers who are being devastated and hurt by climate change could help as well. It won't hurt them. We can have strategies that help them. Heck, we can end this crazy corporate consolidation in that sector and really invest in the kind of independent family farming that's going to not only help deal with climate change, but help them be far more successful. But if you get rid of, if the goal is um, get rid of fossil fuels in a decade, is there a room for ethanol in that? Or should we wean our way off that and look more at solar and wind? There's not a person that you can talk to that knows that one day our transportation sector will be electrified. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So right now, you know, I support uh, E15 year-round. I support ethanol. we got to support our farmers uh, and know that this transition's coming, though, to electrification. So what is our plan to stop what's already happening? 
the attack on the independent family farmer. We, we have not only a disappearance of farmers who are having to sell their heritage, their culture, to these big corporate uh, uh, farms who are becoming contract farmers, uh, which is near, near sharecropping, who instead of having five people to sell their goods to, now they only have one, and if you dare to even speak out against that, they'll cut you off. Who have their, their source uh, products uh, uh, with massive multinational corporations like Monsanto raising their price. Farmers now, their share of the consumer dollar has dramatically gone down 40, 50, 60 percent. We've ignored the American farmer, uh, uh, and they're hurting. The suicide rate for American farmers is as high as it's been since the Great Depression. So this is the crisis right now, and, and the solution is to find ways to help them, not these stupid tariffs that are hurting them and hurting their, their, their ultimate commodity prices. We need to have solutions to actually help the independent family farmer, not these massive CAFO operating corporate operations, but the people who built this country, the original entrepreneurs. And I believe, and this is why I've introduced legislation already about against corporate consolidation, to reform programs like the checkoff program that benefit these massive corporations, but not our independent family farmers. There are strategies we can do to help those farmers help the environment, preserve our culture and heritage, and have a win-win. And this is the dangerous thing that's happening in our country. We're pitting ourselves against each other. My neighbors in Newark, New Jersey, go into a bodega and find a Twinkie cheaper than a, 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 a tomato. They're caught up in the same broken food system that's screwing farmers in Iowa. We're all in this together. I'm not running to give Donald Trump more attention. You know, he sucks enough oxygen out of the room. But it is important that we all, I'm sure from your side, though, to figure out why he won in the first place, well, though, right? No disrespect to you guys in the media, but the media's, the, the corporations that control our media are making more money than ever before. You turn on the TV, I don't care if it's whatever cable news channel is your flavor, it is Donald Trump all the time. One side wants you to be outraged. He is, he is Darth Vader. The other side to say, oh, my God, he's Luke Skywalker. He is selling. He is money. And, and every side wants to try to arouse our anger and our outrage. He is getting all the oxygen. And that is not why I'm running. I'm not running just, by the way, I want to beat him. I don't want him to be my president. But I'm not running for the, just to win an election. I'm running because of the larger campaign for this country that started when a bunch of guys stood up on Bunker Hill and, and, and pushed back on the largest naval armada on the planet Earth and beat the British and started this journey we have to a more perfect union. I'm running because I believe in the idea of America that when they wrote in the Declaration of Independence that we must mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Think about that sacred honor in this era of politics where all we're doing is trash talking and trying to tear each other down. Think about that sacred honor in an era where we look at the TV and sometimes Republican or Democrat feel embarrassed about the words that are coming out of people in the Oval Office. Think about that sacred honor when we put kids in cages. Think about that sacred honor where there, people are struggling in quiet anguish just to make ends meet and feel like they're alone and nobody's there. We must pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That's not just a declaration of independence. That's a declaration of interdependence. I'm running for president because I believe we have real problems, but key to solving those problems is to stop putting each other down and get back to lifting each other up. You might have noticed his voice was a little hoarse. We talked to him at about 8 o'clock in the morning, and he had just had back-to-back -back nights of getting to bed at about 3 o'clock in the morning because of all the traveling they were doing across our state. You see this sometimes when they really push these candidates, and one of the first things you notice to go is the voice. 
Thanks for being with us on the first Price of Politics, etc. podcast. And if you've been around Iowa for a while, the name might be a little bit familiar to you. A few years back, I used to write a blog for Channel 13 News, and we used the same name. So what's old is new again. Talk to you next time.